I love it when our music and our words are all lined up. It's a sign to me that the Holy Spirit is uh, hard at work. And the Holy Spirit is hard at work because God loves us and wants us to know and grow in him. So with that in mind, will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the things that uh, is most remarkable about the life of Paul the Apostle, the last person who really called himself an apostle, and he did this on the basis of having met the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul was on the way to persecute Christians. He was a rising star in the Jerusalem community. He was an up-and-comer. And the high priest in Jerusalem had given him letters of authority so that he could go to Damascus and expunge all of the believers in the, the way. That's what they called the Christians at that time, followers of the way. And they were causing some distress in the synagogues and the outlying areas. And Paul saw the persecution of these Christians as an opportunity to gain an advantage in his political career in Jerusalem. So he took the walking papers and he set off, and you can read about this in the, in the book of Acts, set off uh, on the road to Damascus to see that nobody was left in the synagogue who was claiming the name of Christ. And along the way, he was struck down and blinded by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord spoke to him and said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul of Tarsus began the conversion into Paul the apostle. Now, what we often miss if we read through the book of Acts is that it took Paul another 10 years, 10 years from his Damascus Road experience until he set out on his first missionary journey. He spent 10 years going back through the scriptures and seeing the unseen footprints of God who were leading God's people to this inevitable conclusion of their faithful commitment to God in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, the one who came to take away the sins of the world, the one who was crucified and laid in a tomb, the one who was raised again on the third day. This became God's ultimate expression of his love and his fidelity to God's people. And having met Christ and having his heart and his spirit um, enlarged by the Holy Spirit's presence in his life, Paul began to go back through the scriptures he had known all his life, and there they were, those footprints of God, leading him to the crossroads of his life and the fulfillment of his created destiny in the Lord. Now, Paul was a man who was both a Roman citizen and a Jew, born of the Levites. He had full status and standing in the Jewish community, but he was also a Roman citizen with all the rights and privileges appertaining thereto. And all throughout Asia Minor, left over from 500 years before when the Babylonians had conquered uh, Jerusalem and sent Jews into the dispersion or the diaspora were all these little synagogues 
little enclaves of Jewish communities all through Asia Minor. And as Paul looked up after 10 years of praying about his commitment to Christ, and he saw these places all through Asia Minor, he saw them like little stepping stones planted a half a millennium before by the providential hand of God, preparing for one like him who could walk with the freedom of a Roman citizen and with all of the authority of a Jewish uh, scholar into all of these places and share in the Gentile world the good news of Jesus Christ. Forgive me for laying a bit of background information there except to say that Paul was an extraordinary person with an extraordinary skill set and an extraordinary opportunity. And as Frederick Buechner once wrote, when you find the place where the world's deepest needs intersect with your deepest longings, that's probably the place where your mission exists. I want to say that again. If you find the intersection of your deepest longings with the world's deepest needs, that's where God wants you to be in mission. And maybe you're like Paul, and you'll change the very understanding of who God was sent to love. When Paul got to the end of the suffering servant, and he read where Isaiah said, it's not, just for the, it's not enough for the Jews alone to come to salvation, but my salvation shall be a light to all the nations. Paul said, Christ shall be a light to all the nations. And off he went into the Gentile world to teach them to believe in Christ. Now, I wish I could tell you that God, having had prepared the whole uh, thing for him, that it just went so swimmingly and every, nothing ever happened. But when you read Paul's resume... It doesn't read like one of the megachurch pastors we find today. Planted a church, grew a youth group of 700 kids, then we grew a giant church, and now, you know, we're influencing the whole world. Paul's resume includes shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, being left for dead, deep persecutions wherever he went. He was up against a stiff, stiff headwind. And I say all of that to say that he was writing the words that were just read for us by Helen from house arrest with chains around his feet. He's writing to the church in order to encourage the church, which may be undergoing persecution because the world around the church wasn't prepared for the kind of radical love that the church was bringing. And when I say radical love, I mean the kind of love that springs off the pages of your Hallmark cards and becomes love in action. The very definition of radical is simply that in, instead of just protesting, a radical is one who brings the future vision back to the present and makes it real. A radical is one who doesn't live in the now and work toward a future, but lives in the future reality right here and now. Lives by the rules that God is making for the kingdom right here and now. And I have to tell you, friends, it doesn't fit the world's way of thinking. But you know that already. I was having a conversation with a man who's a, a spouse of one of the colleagues of ours. We were sitting around the barbecue. Uh, we made some barbecue. We were sitting around the patio, and we were talking. And she and I were talking about how how we're trying to get our churches mobilized and how we're going to do this and strategies for that and, 
And then finally her husband spoke up all of a sudden. And this guy is a truth teller. I mean, he speaks it and he just speaks it out. And he says, the problem is that nobody in this generation lives like Jesus. That's the problem. Jesus was preaching a gospel that required a certain kind of lifestyle. And nobody lives that way. Then he turned to his wife and he said, you know why nobody's coming to your church? Because you keep feeding them broccoli, because broccoli is good for them. But there's a huge church down the street that's giving them ice cream. Nobody's going to come and eat your broccoli when there's ice cream right down the street and they have the freedom to go there. Well, that started a whole conversation of its own. But he wasn't entirely wrong, was he? We are coached day in and day out. We are coached by the people around us by the commercials on our television and on the radio, by the ads that appear in the banners on next to our websites, we are coached constantly to live and believe a certain set of beliefs and parameters. We're being coached into a life that's beneficial to some in the world around us, but it isn't even the life that Jesus preached. Francis Kavanaugh, a beautiful uh, Catholic priest and a beautiful spirit, once wrote, let's suppose that you're a reasonably well-adjusted person in a reasonably well-adjusted marriage, have a good family, that you like to read, that you don't feel a compulsion to run to every amusement park, that you like taking long walks and you're reasonably fit, and that you enjoy having long conversations and reflecting on them afterwards. Let's suppose all of those things are true about you. What good are you in terms of the present economy? You haven't spent a nickel yet. The world in which we live requires us to gather and spend and gather and spend, and there's a whole agenda that goes with it. And along comes Jesus saying, give me what you have, I'll bless it, we'll break it, and we'll send it out into a hundred directions, and there'll be enough for everybody. And it turned out there was enough for everybody, and they had 12 baskets of pieces left over. And what did the church do? But instead of bringing what it had the next time to be blessed and gathered and broken, they gathered up those 12 baskets of pieces, and they spent the next thousand years sifting through the pieces and venerating them and making little shrines to them and, 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 and honoring the broken pieces of the leftover grace when there's a, a whole main line of grace to be tapped into. And Paul's writing from prison. This is the first of a three-part uh, reflection on the whole armor of God. Paul is riding in chains, and there are Roman soldiers all around, and as he's looking at these guys wearing their helmets and with their shields and their swords and their, and their battle boots and all of the rest, the great carved breastplates, and they're intimidating and, and they're uh, awesome to look at, he's saying, but we have our own set of armor. We do. But God has been equipping the church to deal with a battle that the church has, has been slow to engage because we are fighting the world's battle still. We're trying to get ahead. We're trying to grow larger. We're trying to, we're trying to cement our place in history and leave our legacy. This world has been sold out to the bigger and the better. We are enthralled with who builds the tallest buildings. At some point, they're going to build one tall enough that it's just going to fall over on its own, but we haven't got there yet. Late last summer, I was watching uh, one of the 
Mission Impossible movies. And there was Tom Cruise hanging on the outside of the Burj Dubai, this gigantic building in the middle of Dubai. And he, it made me queasy. It's the first time I've ever had issues with heights. And I've jumped out of an airplane, you know, and, and that was okay. But that one kind of made me sick to my stomach a little bit, just watching it on film. But we build these buildings higher, and we, we build our armies larger, and we build our ships to be more mighty, and we make the airplanes that fly faster, and we're constantly pursuing who is the best, who is the brightest, who, is the far, who can go farthest. We're, and I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that the discovery of God's creation that goes along with these inventions is a wonderful and enthralling thing. But the measurement of the kingdom of God is right there in plain sight for everyone to see. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be least of all and servant of all. You must let my love flow through you, and you must show the love that I have shown to you to others, and you must put it into action. That's about as close as Jesus comes to saying, you should, you should, you should, you should. I have accepted you. Now in my name, go tell the world that I've accepted them too. And show them how they should live. The United Methodist Church to which we affiliate has been breaking itself open over and over again on questions about who gets to participate. And the latest great question is about the issue of human sexuality. A subject, by the way, which Jesus hardly even addressed in the Gospels. He had next to nothing to say about it. He had a few words about divorce. He said, yeah, Moses permitted divorce, but it's only because our hearts are so hard. And we were, head, we were uh, heaven bent on doing it anyway, so God made some accommodation there. But you know what, do you know what Jesus talked about all the time? I mean, all the time. In all four Gospels, he kept talking about greed. Greed over and over and over again, the things that greed will make us do. Got to have more, got to be more, got to do more, got to want more. Greed is barking at us all the time. Why is that? Well, for starters, there's a whole slew of Christmas ads, and Sam is mad, but I keep saying every day, there's only 135 days left till Christmas. But the ads have already been produced that you're going to watch this Christmas. The snow falling on a small, modest 10,000-square-foot home in Connecticut somewhere with not one but two Lexuses in the driveway with big bows on them. And this family that's barely old enough to be my children have already made it big, and they're sitting there with nothing to do but enjoying each other. And the moms and dads who come home from work having had to work overtime on Christmas week, and the boss barely gave them half of Christmas Eve off. And they look at that commercial and they say, how come I have left, been left out of this? And how do I get into this? Well, I could go into deep debt and buy the car. Maybe that would make me feel better. It would make the car manufacturer feel better. What else do I have to do to get ahead? How can I be like those people? That's the standard. I don't see anybody on the TV who's happy and joyful. I'm watching the show and everyone is blowing each other to bits. But then the commercial comes and the only happy people are the people who are wealthy and privileged and living the quiet life with a soft snow falling on the cedars. 
And it gets in you. And it gets in me. Pastor Jerry and I are still preaching and praying about the Christmas message and the commercials that are going to be feeding our minds are already at work. They're already in the can. They're already ready to go. I was laughing because I said to the guy at Starbucks the other day when I went over to feed my addiction, um, only 140 days till Christmas. And he was like, yeah, I know. And then he said, I just found out that one of our... Uh, partner stores has already gotten all the pumpkin spice latte stuff in. It's ready to go. Now, friends, we are fighting for our lives here. Every one of us. We're hanging on tooth and nail. We're like the kids in that video from camp that are holding on to the tug-of-war rope and the mud pit is getting closer and closer and closer and we're toppling in because we keep measuring ourselves by this world's standards. But Jesus Christ has shown us another way. We have a message to preach at Christmas time. We have a story to tell to the nations. We have a victory in Christ. The people who came to show those children this week the gospel were right. We are victorious people. If we are willing to yoke up for the right battle, we are already victorious. Show me the man who's managed to stay out of prison by trying to walk the straight and narrow path, and I'll show you somebody who's still afraid. Show me the man who is in prison and singing songs to the Lord, and I'll show you someone who is free. Because it doesn't matter what happens to that man's life. He is free in Christ. We have armor that God is giving to us. Next Sunday, Pastor Jerry is going to talk to you all about the armor. But I'm going to tell you, don't yoke up for battle. Don't Get yourselves ready for battle until you understand the nature of the battle that you're in. For we wrestle not, Paul said, with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities, with the cosmic rulers in this present age, with unseen enemy. There is a spiritual dimension to the church, and we forget it when the world we live in is so touch-oriented and tactile. But there is a spiritual dimension to our faith. When you were baptized, they put water on as a symbol of the cleansing of your life from the sins of the flesh. And then hands were laid upon you, and they said, receive the Holy Spirit so that you may be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. The church has always understood that the... Te- the Test, the litmus test of faithfulness to the Holy Spirit is the way that we live our lives as disciples to Jesus. The connection of our life in Christ by living out the love of God that we, that we have in our spirit. But there is an, an enemy of, abroad that we do have to contend with. There are spiritual forces arrayed against the church. There is... Something like an angel that occurs whenever a group of people get together. There's a kind of governing spirit that takes over. It becomes the soul of that place. It happens where you work. It happens where you play. 
I saw it happen when I was in high school, and I wasn't even fully committed to Christ yet. But I went to a basketball game, and our high school was terrible at basketball. We were okay at, at football, and we were mighty in cross country. Um, but we were just terrible at basketball. And the best team in the league had come to our gym, and they were running us out of the gym. And the, the, the football players, now that football season were over, were making remarks to the football players from the other school on the other side of the gym, and it was kind of escalating. And somewhere along the way, I walked out of the gym right after the game, and I saw a whole group of our senior lettermen over here and a whole group of senior lettermen from the other school over there. And brothers and sisters, something ignited in that moment. You could feel like electricity dancing through the air. Something was about to happen. It made the hair on my arms stand up. I almost said the hair on my head, didn't I? <laughs> I had some then. But you knew it was about to happen. Now, I looked over at this group of lettermen from my high school, and there was top five in our class academically. At least 70% of them were college-bound. These were straight-up straight people, citizens of our school. And they were barking at this other side, and this side was barking back. And then one of the people from my school walked across the void in between, and you just thought, here it goes. And he spit right into the middle of them. And then both sides charged, and it took the police to pull them all apart. And you could point to the man who did the spitting, or you could point to the one who um, was do calling the names, or you could point to the fact that we were lousy at basketball. You could point to a million things in the world that you could take us around the barn seven times, but you still wouldn't quite have a handle on what was happening because there was something spiritual that had gotten hold of these guys and they were spoiling for a fight. And it just didn't matter who it was going to be. But we wrestle not with flesh and blood. And the ones who engage on that level are in for a hard time in this world. But our fight begins on our knees. Our life in Christ begins in hope. And I need to, I need to say this as broadly and loudly, and I, I hope you'll help me say this. Hope does not come to our lives as a result of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Hope is the work of the church. It's what God put us in the world to do. In the midst of deplorable, desperate circumstances, we are the ones who stand and bring hope to the world. That's our job. And we have to be fully equipped in order to do it. We need a different kind of armor. We need a different kind of armor. And in order to pick the armor that we need, we need to know the enemy against which we're fighting. It, it isn't the guys that are making life hard for you in the flesh. It's the powers and the principalities and the rulers of the air who have gotten a hold of us and made us frightened and fearful. And yes, Madison Avenue and the people that make ads are really good at it. I've told you this before, but in marketing, the very first thing you learn is don't ever, ever sell an aspirin tablet. Sell the Excedrin headache. If you can give somebody a headache, they'll buy your aspirin. 
If you can give someone a heartache, they'll buy your car. If you can give someone a hurt in their spirit, there's no telling what they might do for you. And Jesus can fill every one of those holes. I, I hope in the 130 days we have until Christmas, I hope that we can get busy telling the world a different story. A story of hope and of redemption. A story of hope and of promise. A story of hope and of forgiveness. A story of hope and of healing. I hope that we can give our testimonies to what we know of Christ. And no, maybe my life does not fully line up with how the way Jesus the Galilean lived. And maybe I'm not living the way Jesus the Galilean would have lived if he had been born in this century. But I'm on my way. And we have, we have God on our side. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against powers and against principalities. I want to share one testimony with you, and then I'll wind this down, I promise. But I was in a church that had decided that it needed to move itself forward. It had a campus that was out, uh, outdated and worn out. We needed to remodel, and by the time we were done, it cost almost a million dollars to do the facelift that we did. We didn't know how we were going to do it. And in the middle of it, it got so close to the margin that we sat in a finance committee one night and wondered how we were going to get through the month. And those of you who know me say, hey, this sounds familiar, Bill. Um, but the chair of finance that night, she opened her Bible and she read the story of Hezekiah when Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian army. Hezekiah got up from his throne, walked across Jerusalem, took the taunts that were being hurled by the Assyrians into the city of Jerusalem, took them and he spread them out on the floor of the sanctuary and he said to God, are you going to let them talk about you like that? And he took this physical battle and he made it spiritual. And the chair of finance closed the Bible and she opened the church books and she said, everybody push your chair back and follow me. And she opened the door and she walked outside and we walked up to the sanctuary. She said, Pastor, will you open the sanctuary? And she walked in and she walked down the center aisle and she walked right up and she laid the books in the middle of the chancel. And she had everybody gather around and hold hands. And she said, God, are you going to let your church be treated like this? We need a breakthrough. It didn't come suddenly, but friends, it came. And I know I look frustrated as a pastor from time to time. But it's just because I'm waiting for the finance committee to walk over here and take their case to God. I'm waiting for the trustees to start their work here, not in the meeting. I'm waiting for us to be that people. And God's on the way. For the first time in 32 years as a pastor, the other night at the trustee meeting, one of the trustees used a Bible story to illustrate the point he was trying to make. And I stopped the meeting and I gave thanks to God in that moment. More, please. More of that. Let us be a church who knows the real nature of the fight that we're up against. 
so that when something happens at the 11th hour or a truck breaks down or whatever else, we go, well, Paul kind of said it would be this way, but we are undeterred and we are on our way because we know who is arrayed against us and we know the one who has power over all things. Amen? Amen. Amen.